Who is this Byron? <laughs> <laughs> Who is this Byron the Bold? Who is this Byron the Bold? He's on the cover of all the literary magazines. <laughs> Nobody knows who he is and what makes him tick. His scintillating sexual charisma. Ahem. <clears throat> Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Thomas Pynchon loved this book almost as much as he loves cameras. A screaming comes across the sky. It has happened before, but there is nothing to compare it to the now. To the now. To the now. Here's the mystery of Thomas Pynchon. Slow Learners, Episode 3. Covering Gravity's Rainbow, Section 1, Chapters 14 through 17. Have a good listen. Picking up with chapter 17, which is another big, fat, wide-ranging, weird chapter. It opens in a kitchen where Osby Field is drawing out mushrooms, presumably of the psychedelic variety. Although such psychoactive fungi were not known to white Westerners until about a decade after the action of the chapter, but anyways. And he's also filming a woman. Her name is Katja Borgesius, and she's a Dutch undercover agent who Prentice was asked to call home. We flash back to her mission, working as a sex slave for the maniacal Nazi rocketeer, Captain Blasero. Along with a boy named Gottfried, Katja was part of what was called a Hansel and Gretel routine, where they play-acted as brother and sister in the service of Blasero. Blasero, who is the novel's primary villain, although in a typically kind of complicated way, is, among many other things, an S&M freak. He wears a rubber prosthetic vagina lined with razor blades and makes his captives kiss it. He whips and beats them. He imagines a whole world, which he calls his little state. Placero, in a past life, has spent time in Africa among the Herero people, and he had a Herero lover named Oberst Einzian, who will become another of the book's major characters in a bit. Remember, the Herero are also the subject of the Operation Black Wing fake propaganda movies that are being produced at the White Visitation. Then we're back with Slothrop, who's on the prowl in foggy London town. He hooks up with a nurse named Darlene, who lives with an old woman named Mrs. Quod. Quad? Thomas Pynchon, if you're listening, reach out and tell me how to pronounce that. At their place, Slothrop eats a bunch of disgusting candies, and then he gets laid. Roger Mexico gets laid as well, in a flashback of his first tryst with Jessica. Roger rails, again, against the freaks at the White Visitation. For Roger, the freaks are not necessarily the inmates, but the men in charge. Roger and Jessica are on the road and happen across an Advent service at a church in Kent. They enjoy this respite from the war and all the weirdness, witnessing a rather bizarre mass. The perspective shifts to the second person. The reader is addressed as you, and then you is revealed to be Pointsman. That's interesting. Pointsman learns that his mentor, Kevin Spectro, has been killed in a rocket blast, which landed in the house where Slothrop had recently slept with Darlene. Pointsman then reflects on his own death, and then he jerks off, of course, in a very self-loathing scene. Oh, why don't women like me? And stuff like that. Maybe because you're weird as shit. Pointsman ponders Slothrop's future and suggests that he has been sent off somewhere in the French Riviera. Finn.
So, John, this section, this chapter 14, begs a lot of big questions, I think. Yes. Are you, is that how you use beg the question? <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. You tell it's me. It's just asking questions. It begs questions of, of us to ask. Right. Okay. Okay. That's, how, that's how I think of it. Got it. Um, well, we begin back at the Maisonette with Katya. Um, and we get the sense that someone is filming her sort of voyeuristically. And this is – is this is revealed in that section to be Osby feel or do we get that later? It is Osby, yeah. He's yeah. like uh, drying out mushrooms in the uh, oven. Right. And I think we talked about this in the summary, but it's like this chapter is a good chapter for understanding how the book works, especially with like perspective and point of view where mm-hmm. it's like it – opens discussing Katya, then it goes into her memories, and then it goes from that memory into Gottfried's memory. And, and then, we got some Blissero memory. Yeah, so it's like it's almost like, uh, you know, like a thread of consciousness that kind of goes through people and yes. kind of zooms in and zooms out. Maybe that's a mixed metaphor. And then it's the, that thread of consciousness is able to jump back 300 years into colonial Dutch history. Yeah. Let, oh, let's talk about that. Okay. Franz Vandergroot. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess the first question would be why. Why do they discuss old Franz? He comes up again later. Uh, I think the one thing that it's doing is uh, even when, like, Blasero refers to his base as, like, the oven and there's the Hansel and Gretel implications, there's a way in which this book, like, uh, obliquely talks about the Holocaust without talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that going from that imagery to discuss like the genocide of the dodo, the totally meaningless genocide of it, is kind of yeah creating this thread that this appetite for just like violence and extermination uh, has you know historical precedence, but maybe even like is baked into humanity. Although I won't go that far. That's more of like a Cormac McCarthy thing, I think. Yeah. That violence has been waiting for us before there was man. I think it's baked into not like, I mean, a cliche thing would be to say it's baked into capitalism, but I think Pynchon is trying to say it's baked into a certain type of European mindset. Yeah, like the colonial project, certainly. I mean, uh, the entire experience between Blasero and Einzian and... The extermination of the dodo. I mean, he sees it as all being part of a larger project of conquest, subjugation, and death. Right. And I also think Pynchon is pr- just to, to talk about sort of the metatextual aspect in the the scope of his career. I think he's flirting with some of the stuff he'll do later, which is like this earlier historical novel. I mean, he's he's never gone this far back and works so far, right, to the 1700s or 1600s. I don't. Th- uh, well, Mason and Dixon takes place, right? But that's it, after, right? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, there's sections of V that take place in the the kind of flashback to the colonial period. Yeah, but I don't think he's gone that far back. Right. All right. Yeah. So just rewinding just a bit, um, we have Katia. Godfried as two sort of yin and yang male female sex slaves of Captain Blasero. Uh, I think we probably said who Captain Blasero is, but I, I feel like there's more to be said about who he is, his past, and what he's doing like for the Nazi effort. Yeah, well, he's like a rocket scientist essentially, uh, but he was also a uh, German soldier and colonialist who appears as a character in V briefly as Lieutenant Weissman, which is also his character's name in this. And should we say what that means in German? White man. Yeah. Weissmann. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is whatever. You the know, white man is the bad guy. You don't have to even read anything into that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I think that he represents a sort of almost cartoonish mania that was uh, evidenced in real life in people like Werner von Braun or uh, Walter Dornberger or people who sort of viewed the Nazi rockets and the weapons program as almost this, like, transcendental project where it's like this is not going to just like be a weapon of war but it will elevate the human species to a sort of new evolutionary level uh we will be able to conquer the stars it's almost like a fantasy of of godliness uh but the interesting thing about the character well one of the many interesting things about him is like he's obviously made to be like super villainous. Like he's depicted wearing a rubber prosthetic vagina with razor blades in it that he makes these sex slaves like lick and kiss, which like, I don't kink shame generally, (laughs) but I don't think it's, you wouldn't, you're not into that. No, I wouldn't want to do that to have it be done to me. Um, but when he arrives in the novel and when he's depicted, it's like he's not that much stranger than Pointsman, right? right. Uh, the, and the idea that, like, the Nazi is just kind of this cartoonish version of the more kind of bureaucratic, functionary evil guy who himself will become totally megalomo- megalomaniacal mm-hmm. uh, within, like, 80 pages, uh, I think is an interesting way to depict that, like, these barriers between the allies and the Axis, the good guys and the bad guys, uh, you know, the Nazis and the British and the Americans uh, are not irrelevant, but they're not as material as they were made to seem. I mean, this is also the chapter that gives us the whole the real war is buying and selling. It's a celebration right. of markets, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So we're setting up this idea of like Pinchon's like corporate internationalism mm-hmm. being what he views as the meaningful organization of capital, labor, and power. Uh, So there's a sense in which also, I think, Blasero is not a sympathetic figure, but I think that, like, uh, Pinchon books always like people who are weird, right? And he certainly... He provides a fun episode for the reader. Yeah, and I think there's something about him that's weirdly more likable than Pointsman, right? Yeah. Like, would you rather be the guy who's, like, slinking around, nurturing these kind of, like, private fantasies, or, like, a fully demented supervillain? Well, I think the allied character that he's even more paralleled with is Pudding, just because Pudding is later revealed to have, you know, not entirely disconnected kinks. Yes, and also involving Katya. But Pudding is, uh, is, I think, unproblematically a good guy, though. If we not to spoil ahead, but his ghost does join the counterforce <laughs> later in the novel. Uh, so maybe not like I mean, no one is unproblematically a good guy, but I think that pudding, despite being kind of pathetic and a creature of the old world, uh, is I don't know, vaguely heroic. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, maybe he's redeemed. He's redeemed definitely after dying of E. coli from eating too much human shit. <laughs> But I do think he starts out a little bit like of a foil to the characters we do like. Yeah, like he's – well, Pudding is certainly a foil to Pointsman because it's like he's this old fuddy-duddy who doesn't understand all these experiments happening yeah. at the White Visitation. And he's like, why can't war just be like men loving each other and dying and pissing shit like it used to be, you know? Yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, I think we can – we don't need to go into too much analysis about the whole sex games and the – sex capades but i do think this section is important with the introduction of 
Blacero's time in the Sudwest and with Einzian. Yeah. Um, who gets introduced here? Do you want to just sort of tell us how this is introduced and how it might hint at what's co- what's to come? Yeah. So Einzian is kind of like is uh, a Herrero uh, revolutionary who was the lover of Blacero when Blacero was in like German Southwest Africa, which I believe is like present day Namibia. Namibia That's yes. right. Um, and Einzian, it kind of echoes the whole sort of uh, Westward Man, Lil Pard thing in Slothrop's fantasy earlier in the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Einzian will be the one who is leading the Schwartz Commando uh, across Europe to recover scraps of rockets. So similar to Blacero, Einzian is like just as obsessed with the rocket. But where Blacero sort of has this fantasy that like this is going to totally change the character of human beings. Einzian's goal is just to like wipe out the entire planet and destroy everyone because he believes that like only a total uh, extermination of everyone on planet earth will complete the sort of logic of colonialism, Mm. Uh, which is something that we'll talk about in a subsequent episode. And we'll have a wonderful guest who can kind of put this in context, (laughs) put the idea of uh, global genocide in context for us, which is always helpful. Right. And then at the end of this chapter, we get Osby and Pirate sort of discussing Katya's future at the White Visitation, and it's the last time we'll see either of them for a while. Yeah, and we should say they're filming her in the kitchen, and this is a film that we learn is being shown to uh, an octopus called Gregory. Grisha. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, is it? That's the Russian sort of nickname for Grigory. 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 so he's watching videos of her for some reason, and that, or I guess film of her, not videos. Um, and that will become clear why that is later in the book, mm. not too far from now. Nice. So then what happens? Um, Th- then we have the English candy drill scene. Yes, this is in the next chapter, chapter 15, which is after that long involved Katya chapter, Blasero, Katya's ancestor, Franz Vandergroove. We return to Slothrop. In a relatively scenic chapter. Yes. Where Slothrop... Gets laid. Gets laid with some weird British lady who gives him a bunch of disgusting... No, the, the, he get, he, he's sleeping with a nurse called Darlene, and Darlene lives with oh, this lady named yes. Mrs. Quode, right, right, who right, right. describes herself as being a witch. Yeah. And there's this kind of uh, comical scene where uh, he's eating, like, pre-war candy, wine jellies, they're called... Uh, and chasing it with like bitter wormwood tea and it's the kind of thing where it's like he's constantly going back and forth to get the taste of the other one out of his mouth uh, and there's also a thing in this to talk about like oblique references to the holocaust when he eats the one gross confection the line is his tongue's a hopeless holocaust <laughs> um, so yeah this is kind of just like uh, the section where I mean we hear a lot about Slothrop having sex and seducing women and I guess here we kind of get to see him in action yeah and it's planting a seed for something that won't matter so much but is like directly connected to the mystery of this first and most of the novel which is Slothrop's whether his connection to these rocket strikes is real or not definitely yeah Um, because we learn shortly after this that this specific tryst he has with Darlene either causes or is randomly followed by a rocket strike. Yes. Two blocks away. Yes. At St. Veronica's. Yes. I wanted to ask you about the prolonged section. It begins with their church visit at a church in Kent. Right. At a choir. And then it sort of devolves into pages of something about toothpaste and... Yes. (laughs) um, 
We're, we're, we visit like Italian prisoners of war briefly, and we like, uh, you know. I think there's some t- there's some flashes into the mindsets of like the three wise men or something like uh, in the in the manger scene or Jesus himself. Like, yeah, the, the this that chapter is sort of like I think in the guy I read that it's full pinch in mode where he's just kind of like riffing from idea to idea and like that sort of traveling spark of consciousness that we talked about is just like going off. Yeah. Um, but it's also like you know. I know some readers of the book don't like the Roger and Jessica stuff because they think it's, like, boring or that, like, Pinchon can't write romance well or something like that. Yeah, which I I disagree. I disagree, and I think that in this section, what it's doing, like, the Roger and Jessica stuff, part of the earnestness is, like, there's the line in the section where they talk about how the war doesn't prize oneness, it prizes complexity. So it's like there's a difference between a totalizing system like war or capital or something like that and something that can oppose it where it's like actually about people being kind of drawn together, right? Yeah. So this church service they go to where it's like a, a Jamaican corporal who sings in Latin then sings in German uh, in an Anglican church, it's doing this thing where it's like this – uh, merging of seemingly contradictory or just distinct things into yeah. one kind of piece of folk art. Right. Uh, and, you know, the the extent to which Pinchon even can make himself believe this, I don't really know. Like, I think it's one of the most unconvincing things in the book is that, like, you can actually oppose these systems by right. being nice and pulling together with one another. I mean, we'll get into that later when we talk about the fourth section of the book where yeah. I think the actual narrative and the writing is attempting to, like, suggest an alternative. It's, I, I don't – I wouldn't take that from this section personally just because yeah. we're aligned with Roger mm-hmm. and Roger's thoughts about this are very, are quite cynical. Yeah. He sort of resolves that, like – there, here's this sort of communal thing going on, but it's futile. Everything comes down to the individual, right? And Rogers like sort of consumed with this with this fight between these great superstructures hanging over this whole thing. You know, intelligence agencies, war, the bigger themes, and the individual, him, who's in love with this girl, who he knows he's not going to keep when the war is over. But Rogers' story is also one of like de-cynicalization mm-hmm. like he he is like talks about being a, cre- a creature totally created by the war and like the climate of it and even the sort of essential moral clarity of it gives him a sense of purpose but he becomes disillusioned of all that throughout the course of the book and by the end of it Roger who is yeah kind of just this like cynical geeky math guy at first mm-hmm. I think again becomes someone who's like more legitimately heroic yeah so perhaps this scene with the choir is sort of like the nadir of Roger's cynicality. And right. After this, he's going to climb out of the hole. I mean, he, we have this quote from his mind that says, you must create yourself alone in the dark or something. Yeah, yeah. That, what is it? The the road, the path you must create by yourself in the dark. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, but even that I think is nice. Like he's saying, it, he's saying that like chance encounters and sort of randomness and happenstance, like these are the kind of flickers of hope. I mean, it's such a cliched phrase and like, the idea of hope is so uh, disabused that it's hard to even talk about seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know there is something there where it's like, yeah, you must forge your own way in the dark. But he appreciates that these little kind of like weird moments, similar to like when he's in bed with Jessica, that it's like a respite from something larger and more grinding and soul destroying. Right. Right. If that makes sense. I think it makes sense. I think that's good for this chapter. Well, we but... have one more chapter, seven, All right. 17, Pointsman, and this and that. Right. I, I think I, I have a couple questions. I mean, I think like we've mentioned the book. Right. But I'm curious about the book. 
Yeah, when I first read this, uh, I thought that the book was a reference to Gravity's Rainbow Cell <laughs> for some reason. But I literally just think it's a book of uh, of dialogues between Pavlov and another scientist. Yeah, something? it's a book of like Pavlovian behaviorism. Yes. Uh, that for Kevin Spectro and Pointsman and these characters is like well, a, we should say seven characters. The seven characters. Who, who this? book rotates in yeah it's like in the simpsons when they all have to share the radioactive man comic right but uh, the book also brings a curse to these seven guys and they die of either accidents or viol- war violence or some combination of the two yeah or rockets landing on them yeah i count that as war violence right <laughs> yeah, true um so yeah pointsman is one of like the only two people with thomas gwen gwen hiddy gwen hiddy uh who owns this book that's been circulating between a group. And this is when you get like a little bit of interiority into Pointsman. I also think it's the first time that Pinchon does the second person thing where he's saying yeah, yeah. Uh, your own form of blah, 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 blah. Like he's identifying the viewer explicitly with Pointsman, yes. which I think is an interesting decision because, you know. It's very interesting. It feels arbitrary. Yeah. And because like, except for maybe Blasero, Pointsman is even at this point, the most like loathsome and unlikable character. So the idea that as a reader, you're yoked inside the consciousness of that character specifically feels like a choice. I mean, obviously it's a choice. Um, I think it has something to do with plot. I mean, I think Pynchon is seen as someone who either like spurns, disregards or fights against plot. Yeah. I do think aligning the reader with Pointsman gives us a real sort of plotty turn the pages thing because Pointsman is resolved more than anyone to figure out if the slather of phenomenon is real or fake. Totally. And like so much of the implotment of the novel in this section and the next section, at least is literally part of a conspiracy being executed by pointsman and a sort of mega conspiracy above him. So in terms of like plots, like he is more or less laying the plot of the novel yes. itself, but we do get this kind of like interiority of like just how pathetic he is. Like there's in this chapter is when he like, uh, dreams that he wins a Nobel Prize for his research yeah. and he fucking like jerks off to the yeah, idea yeah. of winning yeah. a Nobel Prize. Yeah, it plays up funnily against, I think, Pynchon's probably mm, conflicted fantasies about getting a Nobel. Right. You think he was... I think Pynchon wants a Nobel. Who would? Who He's wouldn't? not so idealized. Like, oh, I'm Mr. Whatever, anyway. Um, yeah, so you were saying that Pointsman is a pathetic character... Uh, specifically because women don't like him. And yeah, like he literally, like he like desperately wants like girls to like him. And he does get head from a secretary in a closet. Yeah, not long after at, this. That's true. At the party earlier. Is it wait? Yeah. Is it after this or before this? Exactly. I can't remember. Exactly. He gets a sucker in a closet. Yeah. yeah. One final thing is, Pointsman has this recurring dream slash fantasy about the Minotaur about being Theseus. Yeah. With a sword and slaying the Minotaur. Yeah. Um, and the Minotaur goes from. Greek mythology, then to some made-up Nazi officer who he tracks through a Londonized Berlin because yeah. he's fantasizing this. So Pynchon is saying he's never actually been to Berlin, so therefore he dreams of Berlin as London, and he's tracking down this Nazi. And then that train of thought leads to Slothrop being the Minotaur. Yeah, like yeah, I think Slothrop is like the object of his quest in the sense that he's this almost unfathomable beast that he can't wrap his head around. Yes, so... This chapter is giving us Pointsman's sort of plot resolution to figure out the Slothrop phenomenon and possibly destroy Slothrop through that figuring out. I mean, he has a vengeful streak in him in some sense. Yeah, especially in this chapter because he literally blames Slothrop for the death of his friend Kevin Spectro. Right, I think we should end here by saying concretely that Spectro is killed and it's connected to Slothrop's 
tryst with Darlene. Or that's what Pointsman thinks because yes. he believes that there is a causal relationship between Slothrop having sex yeah. and the rocket strikes. So uh, Spectro becomes the latest member, owner of the book to be killed through violence and Pointsman blames it on Slothrop. Yeah, so now he like is not only curious and obsessed by Slothrop, he like hates him personally. Yeah. I'll get you. System, system, system. So in this section of the book, I think we get a pretty clear picture of some of the things in Gravity's Rainbow that a certain class of snooty, pearl-clutching critic might have deemed obscene. In fact, the book was something of a scandal when it came out. We wanted to talk a bit about that scandal, as well as the sort of culture of literary scandal and hoax that surrounds its author, Thomas Pynchon, and the way that Gravity's Rainbow was sort of received in the upper echelons of the literary institution in America and elsewhere. So we tapped a guest to come on who knows a lot about the book. He speaks very eloquently about pension and American literature in general, and a lot about literary culture and awards culture. So please welcome our guest, who is... I'm Alex Shepard. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. Uh, technically, I cover... Uh, national politics, but I also dabble in uh, both publishing history and some some literary criticism. And you host a podcast. I also am the host of a podcast called Mr. Difficult about uh, another great American novelist, uh, Jonathan Franzen. I, I hope we're not eating your lunch by doing uh, <laughs> another difficult novelist podcast. But there's got to be room for two, right? The more the merrier. Yeah, I, I, I say the more the merrier. Well, I wanted to sort of set this up because to, to sort of intro you, in 2015, you wrote an article for the New Republic that sort of had to do with Thomas Pynchon. It had to do with a kind of literary hoax. Can you kind of walk us through that? What was that article about? I think that that actually may have been my first article at the New Republic. Um, so in 2015, uh, Art Winslow, um, who was the literary critic, guy had been around the sort of publishing industry for a long time. Uh, he reviewed this book from a, a small press that no one had ever heard of um, by a guy called A.J. Perry. Um, oh, sorry, excuse me, by um, Adrian Jones Pearson. Uh, and the press was Cow Eye Press. Uh, and he reviewed it for Harper's, which was pretty surprising given that no one had heard of this book at all. It was self-published. This press had not put out any other books. Uh, and it was called Cow Country. And... Um, Winslow not only did the normal kind of effusive reviewer thing by saying uh, this book is Pynchon-esque, uh, but he also essentially implied that he thought that the book was or could have been written by um, Pynchon himself. And that kind of created this um, weird firestorm for a couple of days where uh, people couldn't stop trying to figure out, even though no one had read this book, you know, could could Pynchon um, have read it? Um and or sorry, I could Pynchon have written it, and I, uh, I kind of went and did way more research than I needed to. It turned out that actually the the real, um, the, the whole thing would have been revealed if I had just looked up his Library of Congress record. Um, but nobody thought to do this, so there was kind of a long digital paper trail. I ended up reading the book, which is quite good. I'm actually now friends with 
um, AJ Perry, Adrian Jones Pearson, whatever, um, who's a writer who lives in Kauai, uh, the island in Hawaii, hence the name of the press. Um, but uh, I I did reveal I did try to contact Melanie Jackson to ask for a comment who is uh, Pynchon's wife and agent. Um, I did not receive a reply, which is not particularly surprising. Um, That's too yeah. bad because I, I feel like getting the pension denial email is almost like a rite of passage, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that I I think eventually they did deny, but maybe to the Associated Press and not to me. Um, but in general, I think when you try to report on pension stuff, you tend to get met with um, radio silence. And again, too, you know, I think even people I know, I don't know if I've ever met Melanie, but um, I think it's largely understood that you do not bring up Tom to her. Well, let me ask about this. You know, when Cow Country came out, what was it? What is it about pension that makes it believable that he could be a person behind a novel that it's not attributed to him? I mean, why is pension specifically always at the center of these literary hoaxes or what, you know, wannabe literary hoaxes? Yeah, I mean, this was a little less esoteric than some pension stuff would be. It was set at a community college. It was kind of a little, I would say a little lower brow or, or pure low brow. But, um, but I think in general, you know, it's a book that, uh, if I recall correctly, was either set in the 60s or 70s, but it was definitely written in a kind of that kind of sort of flamboyant um, style. There's like tons of in jokes that are constantly collapsing in on themselves. Uh, there's, you know, this general sense of of kind of um, conspiracy, uh, not just conspiracy, but apocalyptic conspiracy, that things are not just sort of um, slipping away or deteriorating, but doing so in a kind of way that marks a, a sort of existential threat um and you know again i think stylistically that combination of of humor and um and apocalypse um plus the conspiratorial element like that does still read as as pension or at least you know like delillo is somebody right who combines a, a sort of similar um uh, set of preoccupations but delillo's stuff tends to be more fixated on philosophical questions of language and try to thread a delicate needle here. It's one, it's less exuberant. It's less funny. Um, Colder. And it's also, and, yeah. yeah. And it tends to be more metaphorical. Even the terrorists in, in, um, uh, in DeLillo novels tend to be, you know, they tend to be metaphors about writing or something in Pynchon. They're like clowns. You know, everyone is, is both, um, everything is both serious, deadly serious and a goof at the same time, or at least could be that. Um, and I think that that does line up. I mean, Pynchon stylistically is much closer to what we would, I think, you know, there's an obsession with the 1960s that I think emerges more in Pynchon's later stuff, but there is an affinity to it that you see, that you see with Pynchon more than you see with um, other writers, you would say of his, of his vague kind of great American novelist generation. And it's weird because as he gets older, he almost becomes more nostalgically preoccupied with the 1960s. I mean, I know uh, Inherent Vice was kind of criticized and uh, railroaded in some circles by being like, well, this guy used to take the failure of the hippies seriously. And now he's <laughs> waxing nostalgic for the days of uh, pot smoking hippies. Uh, what is it about that in his literature that you think uh, he keeps returning to? Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, I love Inherent Vice. I think it's a brilliant book. Um and I think one of the things that people got wrong about it is like, is that there is a sadness to hair advice. I don't think it's, it's not nostalgic, you know, in the same way, but it's, you know, in the same way uh, that, 
you know, 65 year old Bob Dylan couldn't have written like a Rolling Stone, but 25 year old Bob Dylan couldn't have written uh, Mississippi or something. <laughs> There's a sense of wistfulness, I think, that that's there that um, that feels like completely earned in Inherent Vice, right? That it's a book about the failure of this generation, but also I think there's a there's a sense of mortality that enters into the picture i think really around mason and dixon um that you know it's sad but it it's not nostalgic right it's just about how um i think there are two things that become more in focus one is that he's something he's always been clear on which is that america as a project is like fatally flawed from its inception and and sort of is an engine driving towards apocalypse um but the other i think that that sort of becomes twinned with it. Um, and again, you really see it in the last, in like the last third of Mason and Dixon. And then it's certainly in the later books too. Inherent Vice, maybe more than anything else is, is also just the sense that of just loss that moving through life is about losing things, people dying about dreams fading away. I, I want to talk about that as it pertains to Gravity's Rainbow and Mason and Dixon too, because when I read his work, there's always this sense that in an almost like Marxist way that there are like moments in history where the conditions present themselves, where we can fundamentally reorient the operations of the world. And Gravity's Rainbow, at least part of it, is very much about how post-war Europe was such an opportunity, all the sections in the zone and the various designs that people have on the future of Europe. Mason and Dixon, I think, perceives in a not naive way, but of the entire colonial project and of America itself as, what is it, the rubbish tip of subjunctive hopes. Uh, and I think that, you know, historically, Pynchon kind of viewed the 60s as that, like, we had all the machinery, we had all the tools, we seemingly had all the willpower, uh, but we blew it. I mean, what do you think that that sort of recurring theme says about him as an author? Like, could he be accused of being cynical or 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 just uh, perceptive? I think, I mean, I think he's less cynical in some ways than somebody like DeLillo, whose work I think has also gotten a lot more, a lot more myopic and also smaller as he's gotten, as he got older. older. Although I guess I like Cosmopolis, but Cosmopolis is also bleak. And I think, I mean, a lot of that, that stuff is bleak. And I think there are, um, you know, the, one of the central preoccupations of postmodern literature, but I think particularly American postmodern literature is just about the act is just about narrative, right? It's about this idea of trying to impose order on the chaos of the world. And like, that's why he writes about Mason and Dixon. You know, there's some reviews when you read them that are like, why is he writing about two surveyors or whatever? Because cartography like, yeah. is the project of all this fiction. Of course, yes. come on. Yeah. Everybody knows this. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, that line in Mason and Dixon is interesting because it's, you know, it's literally th through the wilderness, which is occupied by Native Americans and, you know, the people they encounter as they get closer and closer to doing it, like George Washington <laughs> or whatever. A pot smoking are, George Washington. Yes, pot smoking cool. George Washington <laughs> yeah. are, are engaged in, yeah, violent, a violent project or an inherently violent project. And I think that for Pynchon in general, um, providing order or creating narrative is almost an inherently violent act. I wanted to ask for you to put on your sort of a publishing historian hat. <laughs> we want to talk a bit in the show at some point about uh, Gravity's Rainbow getting kind of snubbed by the Pulitzer Committee. Can you just kind of like walk through that? Uh, what happened? What the objections were to the book? So, I mean, not not to be like the ultimate historian dickhead, 
um, I would just say I love talking about book awards. Um, but for people who don't know, Alex annually speculates on uh, the Pulitzer the and, and the Nobel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever done the Pulitzer, but so the Pulitzer starts in 1918, partly as a reaction to the Nobel. Um, but the Pulitzer is always pretty conservative. It starts pretty conservative. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's maybe overly concerned with honoring a specific turn in American literature. And it's not that surprising if you look at like the early Nobel people, like they tend to be pretty um, not necessarily conservative, but particularly like in America, the Americans who win, um, they have, they have, you know, they're very American and um, the Pulitzer um, does this as well. But so there's this embarrassing moment in 1949 when William Faulkner wins the Nobel Prize for Literature. William Faulkner at this point is um, an alcoholic and his books are increasingly bad, bad, but he wins the Nobel before he has won the Pulitzer. Uh, and this is seen as this like huge American embarrassment um, because they this is our great writer and he hasn't won the award. So the National Book Award, which had existed, is sort of revived in part um, to sort of rectify this. And Faulkner wins it almost immediately for the collected stories. And, and then Faulkner does win two more Pulitzers, I think, for the Reavers, which sucks. And I don't know, Wild <laughs> Palms, something else. Um, maybe Wild Palms. Um, but this sort of starts, and you know, when you look at the early National Book Award winners, they do tend to be much, much more interesting. Um, I was looking at them earlier, and you're kind of like, you know, I think in the '60s in particular, you know, like like John Berryman wins uh, the National Book Award, like Herzog wins the National Book Award, you know, Jean Genet, Walker Percy. Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus, like, you know, they're they're willing to take risks. They're willing to award um, sort of more out there writers. But yeah, so Gravity's Rainbow shares the award in 1970, the National Book Award in 1974 with um, Isaac Singer, a collection of Isaac Singer. And that, and that award, that ceremony is itself a sort of weird, hoaxy. Yes. Uh, yeah, know. there's a story there, too. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, essentially in 1974, um, the Pulitzer, you know, has also, I think, like the rest of America, gotten a little more out there. Uh, so there are three award, or three judges on the panel, which I think is customary. So it's uh, literature professor Alfred Kazin, or sorry, Benjamin, Benjamin DeMott, who's a literary professor, um, who's a really interesting guy, writes a lot about popular culture, or wrote a lot about popular culture. Um, wrote a very good, if I remember, if slightly conspiratorial, uh, Harper's cover story about the 9-11 commission report. Um, Elizabeth Hardwick, you know, one of the greatest American writers ever, and Alfred Kazin, one of the great critics. They read all of the books that you have to read for this. They uh, are like, okay, Gravity's Rainbow is not just like the best book of this year. It's this incredible step forward for literature. It's exactly what the Pulitzer um should be awarding and they send it to, to the larger Pulitzer board and they are basically told like this book is ter not just terrible but it's offensive it's and it's obscene almost in a way that like people talked about Burroughs and stuff in the 50s where it's like yeah. it should not exist yeah so they basically say that it's it's overwritten but I think in general like this is a cultural statement it's not it's not just about the book I think what they're reacting to is also the sense that the Pulitzer Prize for fiction is like going to a work of the counterculture, 
Um, which has a scene where a man eats a piece of poo. Uh, <laughs> yes, which they, they were particularly outraged by that. But I think, you know, in general, like this is a prize that, um, you know, has, you know, whatever, like the early prizes were won by, you know, I mean, the Age of Innocence is one of which is, I mean, Age of Innocence is one of my favorite books ever. But, Very you know, book. it's um, like that was one of the the early winners. You know, you mostly got kind of these buttoned up fairly conservative you know i mean i think hemingway only won it once for old man in the sea um i mean there are occasional moments like um to kill a mockingbird wins it but for the most part you know when you look at the 1960s you know you see a lot of these kind of books where um <laughs> you see used to see a lot in in uh or used to see a lot in used bookstores right bernard malamud wallace stegner right gene stafford um and i think uh, you know, the, the Pulitzer Committee eventually, I think, sent two other possibilities. I know that they did try to float alternatives, but those... Yeah, they're... so I was looking up what those were, so... Right. Yeah, so so there were a few alternatives, and those were more what you would see. The big the big one that you would see um, was, uh, uh, was Gore Vidal's Burr, right? That's a, the exact kind of book that the Pulitzer used to go to. Right. Um, so Isaac Singer's A Crown of Feathers, which is a collection of short stories, that one, that shared the National Book Award with Pynchon yeah. in 74. Um, I think the other one was, I think they also were interested in a John Cheever book too, A World of Apples, which I haven't read, um, which again would be slightly more more up their speed. But you know, one of the things that I think is telling is that the, 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 they did not give out the Pulitzer in 1974. They come back a year later and they give it to Jeff Shara's The Killer Angels. And like that, there's not a, you can think of a less pinchiny book than that, that what we're talking about here is a larger argument about what great American literature should be. And I think that the sense early on was that um, Pynchon was too far afield, that this is countercultural, you know, even though in Gravity's Rainbow is a huge smash. Mm -hmm. um uh you know it was a revolutionary book um but there was always the sense that uh that yeah it was kind of it was out there that it was that it was the counterculture and that you know that these awards don't exist to award the counterculture like they award they exist to to canonize the capital c culture do you think there's something appropriate about this i mean something i'm trying to not do on this show is like imagine pynchon's own psychological interiority because it's such a trap but i feel like there is something appropriate because his work and gravity's rainbow specifically are so much about the rejection of elitism about the difference between the elite and the passed over about tyrone slothrop as a character and pynchon himself being descendants of these blue-blooded upper crust ivy league literate protestant american culture uh there's another universe where he is the kind of guy that rakes in pulitzers year after year i mean is there something for lack of a better word pinchonian about him being passed over for this prize <laughs> yeah i think that that's basically right i mean i think that there's also i you know for me there's also just a thing where like even if he got it like you can't think of i can't think of anyone who would care less about about it right and it would seem like a failure almost not not yeah. only would he not care you know it, yeah. it would seem like he did something wrong well i think yeah that's and that's exactly right and i think what we're also talking about too which exists in his work is a rejection of of the kind of american canon right of um of particularly a kind of like you know spare epic right of you know and you see this come up over and over again in in books that are awarded the Pulitzer in particular, but Pulitzer, but, or to a lesser extent, the National Book Award that, you know, like some later Hemingway is like this as well. These kind of like, you know, 
these these are books that are epic, but they're spare. They're often, you know, people go to the West and you figure out what it means to be an American. And, you know, that answer is occasionally tinged with um, violence or, or regret or sadness, but it's it's never this at the center of it is never this idea that the entire American project is like a sham. And like, I think for, for Pynchon, you know, the, I think one, there's something that's probably too European for a lot of these awards that are at least are obsessed with, again, like the fact that we do not have whatever, even though, you know, we have produced a huge amount of literature at this point that particularly in the early part of the 20th century are, like really obsessed with creating this idea of what American literature actually is and like right. policing it. Uh, and Pynchon like not only exists outside the bounds of it, but he's thumbing his nose at it the entire time. Some of these writers or almost all the writers that we're talking about with these postmodern system novels being DeLillo, DFW, Gaddis, Pynchon. These are also the authors that people call, you know, lit bro favorites. You know, if they're on the shelf, when you go, home with them run away and all those stereotypes yeah i was just wondering if you gave credence to that idea if you thought that it was accurate in any what, way yeah what does that mean have you heard that phrase bro lit or lit bros lit, yeah. lit bros lit bros yeah i think this i don't know why this this happened i think it partly happened around i think for, for some understandable reasons around the time after david foster wallace died maybe around the time that the dt max biography of him came out mm -hmm. um, which is a book that i think reckoned with the fact that, you know, like there was this, there's a kind of bait and switch in Wallace, right? Um, I, in that the nonfiction David Foster Wallace is a guy, there's a creation that he does. And that guy is a guy that you love. Like you're like, I want to hang out with that guy. Like mm -hmm. he is empathetic and curious and he's fun and he's always going weird places. And even when he's like hanging out with John McCain, you're like, oh, I like John McCain. Like John McCain seems great or whatever. <laughs> um, and that character is like a complete invention, right? And it, it's like manipulative in all the ways that David Foster Wallace is manipulative personally. And it also creates what I think of as like extraordinary nonfiction writing, or I guess nonfiction in inverted commas a lot of the time, mm -hmm. since a lot of it was um, invented out of, well, not necessarily, well, we'll say, I think it seems a lot of it was invented out of whole cloth, but at the very least, like there's a lot of, the idea of himself experiencing these things in itself yeah. an invention. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't necessarily think it's like a Stephen Glass situation completely, although right. Franzen has sort of suggested as much in a couple interviews. So I think that that was part of it. And I think again, too, like it's fucking annoying to hear a bunch of guys talk to you about <laughs> books or whatever. Mm -hmm, and totally. I think that this, no, not yeah. at all. Um, but I, you know, and I, I, in general, tend to be sympathetic towards it, at least in theory, because I think it is a way of trying to police the literary canon in a way that's probably helpful, right? Where <laughs> you essentially are like, you look around and you have all these, they're mostly white guys who are like, hey, the best American writers, they're um, Cormac McCarthy, Philip Roth, David Foster <laughs> Wallace, uh, Thomas Pynchon, William Gaddis. William Gaddis. Bloom over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think one way that you deal with that is, is I think it's, it's not fair in a, in a lot of ways, but one way that you deal with that is is through narrative and or at least kind of creating this narrative. I think it attacking the kind of like masculinity that that's sort of being propped up here. And I think a lot of it is David Foster Wallace's fault, as I, I don't know, I keep blaming him for everything <laughs> in this. Because he can't respond, Alex. <laughs> that's unfair. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that 
that that's at my sort of it's it's more meta than anything else but that's kind of my read on it and, and i do think that i mean gravity's rainbow specifically to get back to the raison d'etre for this podcast and i think for me specifically i mean it's the book that people pretend to read or to have read yeah. right like there there's that line in uh, knives out where daniel yeah. craig's characters like nobody has read gravity's rainbow <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I, and i think that like there there's a certain canon of quote unquote pretentious male american authors where personally, I mean, this is why I wrote a guide to Gravity's Rainbow, because I'm like, I think that you can make this stuff accessible and it doesn't mean you have to be compelled to like it or enjoy it or anything like that. But I think with uh, I don't even think I I might not like it. You know, I'm not sure. Fair it's enough. Always vacillating. Yeah. But that so much pleasure abounds in it. And obviously, I think as personally, as I get older, when I was a younger man, I was that guy who had Mason Dixon on his bookshelf for a decade before I even read it, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I think when you realize that. Uh, these books aren't just sort of artifacts to the reader's uh, idea of their own intelligence, but they are these sort of pomegranates of insight and humor and melancholy. Uh, it's worth yeah. cracking open those pomegranates. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of Ulysses, too, in the sense yeah. that, like, there are things that are hard about reading it but for the most part it's just like daunting and once you yeah it, you're like oh actually this is fun <laughs> ulysses is way harder to read than gravity's rainbow yeah. any <laughs> faulkner i think is way harder to read than i mean the good Not faulkner any. the good yeah. faulkner is harder to read than gravity's yeah, rainbow Absalom, i think Absalom is harder to read than anything and it's 250 pages long mm -hmm. or whatever oh did we want to talk about nobel stuff too i didn't know if you wanted oh, yeah to i wanted to actually it. ask about just you know you had pension at i think 20 to 1 this past year and well, yeah, I mean, so I don't, think I don't ever set happen? the odds. Um, so I just take them from Ladbrokes. But oh, okay, gotcha, I don't gotcha. think that Pynchon will ever win the Nobel Prize for like one simple reason, which is just that to um, win the prize, you have to go to Stockholm and accept it right. and the, or Oslo. And the king of Sweden gives it to you. And um, and that is not going to happen. They know like Dylan almost didn't do it, which mm -hmm. kind of like the and the Nobel Committee, this was seen as like a minor scandal. Like the Nobel Committee had egg on its face um but right, because again, patty smith showed up initially right and then uh is yeah. that was that the same yeah yeah i mean he had to give a speech there's a recording of that speech and the speech is really good it's well it's he cribbed really it all good. from the cole's notes to moby yes. dick <laughs> yeah but it's great the stuff about moby dick in it fantastic yeah uh, um but i think that's one reason i think it also goes back as well to kind of the other things that we've been talking about which is just that um that I do think that there is a particular like countercultural strain within it that's like that's different than the kind of literature that's canonized that tends to be canonized by these these types of awards that um, it's seen as being subversive but not like the Nobel Prize likes things that are subversive but that are like you're criticizing a government that puts people in jail or something right the Christian stuff is subversive right. in that it's like questioning the very structure of and can wow. you can you ever be a good person? Is there any way? I mean, I, I think that his sort of abstention from public life is him living by his principles in a way, because so much of his writing is about the idea that as soon as you enter into a matrix of public relations, it is impossible to be a good person. Yeah. Yeah. I think again, too, like I think one of the things that uh, you when you look at Inherent Vice and Gravity's Rainbow and Mason and Dixon, that one of the questions that he has is like, how does this country that you know, is is in some ways full of misfits that, that is founded by misfits and the disenfranchised. Like, how does it become the place where all of power, like that controls the entire power of, of the globe and like uses it in in horrific ways? And I think Pynchon sees himself as as one of those weirdos 
and misfits, but I think understands, I think quite well that the closer you get to touching um, the source of power, like you're just immediately corrupted by it. And that's you... a sort of Tolkien-y way of putting it that <laughs> That's funny. Uh, gravi gravity's rainbow is like in the same way that Lord <laughs> of the Rings is the Norman or the pre-Norman <laughs> myth of England. Yeah. But don't you think, I mean, as far as the Nobel stuff, I get the sense that Tom is softening a bit in his dotage. I mean, he, he's doing the Simpsons. He was, he did the thing where he, he wrote his own book description and trailer for Against the Day. There's... E e you know, possible I, appearances in Inherent Vice. Yeah, and I feel like Inherent Vice is arguably written with an eye towards an, a film adaptation. I mean, yeah. don't you think that maybe his last act will be an anti-vanishing act where he, uh, you know, reveals himself? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be great. I mean, I think he's pretty old. <laughs> he's That's in pretty, true, yeah. he's in pretty I, bad health at this point. But um, but no, I mean, I think you know the other thing to think about with him is that this is somebody who had a child. I think pretty late in life mm. um and uh and i think hold on i'm trying to find one thing with this but you know i think this is somebody who who actually got interested in pop culture in this in this kind of way too i think he's a fan of the simpsons like there mm -hmm. are yeah there are funny jokes about um weird you know cartoons that his kid would have been watching and, like, and bleeding edge talks about like hideo kojima and the metal gear yeah. solid games and stuff yes. like that yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, that is, um, you know, I think there's a joke about, about beast wars, you know, right. bleeding edge, <laughs> like, um, I've yeah, actually reached out to Kojima-san to see if he'll appear on the podcast, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not or super optimistic. Video game adaptation someday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, um, you know, I think like a lot of people that have kids later in life, but I think also he's just somebody who just kind of became... I think he hasn't lost any of that kind of this sort of sharpness of, of that, but it is there, you know, that, that there's this, the sense of irony I think has become, has softened a little bit. Yeah. And I always like when CNN tried to do a profile of him where they tracked him down, but then eventually you kind of, it seemed like they felt bad about it. The, the same he said to them is like, let me be unequivocal. I prefer not to be photographed. Yeah. It's like, that's yeah. it. Like people talk about him as like a recluse in like an Emily Dickinson way. And I don't see him like that at all. Like, you know, from everything I've read or could even conceive of, he has a family and he has friends that he hangs out with. He just doesn't want to take part in public life. And it's like increasingly in a world where the demand to take part in public life almost supersedes whatever you're producing. How can you not respect it? <laughs> yeah, I think he rules like he just hangs out on the Upper West Side. He is a huge stoner. He loves basketball or was a huge stoner at one point. Loves basketball. He loves music. Yeah. Like these are these are great things. Those are all the things I like. Yeah. He just wants it, to hang out. So if you see a guy on the Upper West Side who's like in his mid eighties with weird teeth and like a pork porky pie porky pig hat <laughs> smoking a joint, it could be Thomas. Smoking Pinchon. a joint, taking jump shots. Exactly. Thanks again to Alex Shepard for coming on, talking to us. You can read Alex in The New Republic. He writes about books and politics and all kinds of stuff. Follow him on Twitter where he tweets about soccer. Mm. Whereas it's known in Europe, football mm -hmm. a lot. Uh, you can also listen to his podcast, Mr. Difficult, which is about Jonathan Franzen and his novels, which he co-hosts with Aaron Summers. Next time on Slow Learners, we'll be closing out the first section of Gravity's Rainbow. So if you want to read along, just read up to the end of Beyond the Zero to the beginning of, say it in French, John. Un perm au casino el mangoring. 
And John has a little tidbit about that. It's actually not correct grammatically. Oh, we'll talk about that in the next episode. So stay <laughs> tuned for that. I'll be nitpicking the French translation uh, and the gendering of nouns. Classic Ontarian. Yeah. With, you know, it's like, you know, a little French. Yeah, that's an, um, my Ontario Catholic school education coming out in full force. And there's a 90% chance that I'm probably wrong. <laughs> so tune in for that. Cool. Love you guys. S- Bye. Speak to you next time. Guide at www.gravitysrainbowguide.com. And remember, we love you.